It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Greetings and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, politics, race, sex, censorship, and laughs. We're talking comedy, American style, circa now. They say you really shouldn't inspect comedy too closely, that humor should be experienced, not examined, but some of us can't help ourselves, including my guests Paul Provenza and Dan Dion. Paul is himself an actor and comic. Dan is a photographer of comedians. Both have been serious comedy geeks since they were kids, and as adults, they've become great chroniclers of the art form they love. Dan Dion in his photos, and Paul Provenza as an interviewer and filmmaker. Paul is the director of the documentary film The Aristocrats, which depicted comedians telling the world's dirtiest joke. But it was really less about the outrageous content than it was about the craft of comedy itself. Now Dan Dion and Paul Provenza have collaborated on a new book about the craft of comedy, particularly comedy of the pointed, satirical variety. The book is called Satiristas, and it features photographs by Dan and interviews by Paul with some of the most talented and influential satirists of our time. This book that you guys have put together, with photographs by you, Dan, and interviews by you, Paul, is a pretty deep inquiry into the, the real essence of comedy, where it comes from, what it does to us, its effect on us. And, and Paul, you make a point, I think, in the uh, in your introduction to the book, that it's it's really deeply woven into American history. Absolutely, it's actually it comes from a long line of subversion and anarchy that goes throughout history. In fact, there's a phenomenal book called uh, Lipstick Traces by Grill Marcus, which is, sort of details the history of subversion and, and anarchistic revolutionary impulse all throughout history um and it's it's stand-up comedy good stand-up comedy controversial stand-up provocative dangerous stand-up comedy of today is in that line you know it goes directly from Aeschylus to you know all the way through to Jonathan Swift and Mark Twain and 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 the people who are uh, really speaking the truth today mm. but it, it seemed at least as a performing art it seemed to have really taken off in 20th century. Yeah. Well, I yeah, guess we don't really know what people did in terms of stand-up in the 19th century or 18th well, century. Well, interestingly, I, I think it's related to the sort of uh, um, classic American storytelling tradition, the oral tradition of storytelling. I'm sure a lot of things all sort of cross over, but it, it does have a rich history and it does have a rich social context as well. Mm. You went into these interviews with a lot of questions. You got to talk to guys who I'm sure you knew from being a performing comic and having friends, but maybe some guys you idolized too. Yeah, for sure. And, and you, you have a lot of very searching questions in these interviews. What Thank was, you. What was on your mind most of all? Um, most of all, it was really about not doing an interview. Um, that's what I did with the aristocrats. It's what um, I did with this, and it's what I also do on my new Showtime series, which starts in June, The Green Room, uh, is not to do anything in a sort of conventional linear way what we tried to do with the book at least my part of the book you know it all springs from dan's photographs uh i had seen dan's work long before i had met dan and i'd always been blown away by it and the the thing that i got from his work that was so striking was how evocative it was that there was really sort of there were ideas and they were just sort of things floating around it like you can't quite point to why that's a fantastic portrait of sarah silverman or why that's such an great moment of Craig Ferguson can't quite point to it you just sort of feel it and um, so I thought if we can do interviews that did the same thing that rather than gave you information or were real specifically clearly about one particular thing but but evoked things that you could feel things from that you could you could interpret how you so desire mm, mm. i thought that would be something that would be worthy of accompanying dance photos mm. rather than trying to make literal the abstract or the, the the more wondrous and sort of mysterious. Is it Bob Odenkirk who uh, says in one of the interviews he did that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about how comedy works. It's like magicians, you know, you don't share the secrets. And yet you got people to really open up. There, yeah. are, there are some soul searching in this book. Yeah, there actually is a little bit. Yeah, oh, more quite than a, a bit, little actually. Bit. More yeah. than a little bit. Well, and that came from the, you know, conducting the interviews was not done as a journalistic exercise. 
what I did with all these various projects was try and make people forget that they're doing anything other than just talking to another comic. Mm. Um, they also tend to be suspicious of journalists. They're really loath to try, you know, whenever anybody's going to try and quote their comedy, you know, but with me, with a fellow comic and somebody who, you know, has some recognition as far as they're concerned, um, there was a lot more trust. Mm. We got the journalism out of the way with the intros. So we just gave a little brief intro of each one, and then and then it's kind of, conversation. And that kind of, those intros also are are emotive enough. They're mm. more about you know things that we feel or think about these people than it is actual hard hardcore facts. Mm. So we sort of established that facts are irrelevant mm. here. You mm. know. Now you said that that um, some comedians are um, wary of journalists, and I would add maybe self protective. My impression, not being nearly as close to the business as you are, though, is that a lot of them are very uncomfortable in their own skins. I don't know that that's the case. That's absolutely true for some of them. Mm. I don't think that that's a fair generalization, at least in terms of when they're dealing with journalists. They've been sabotaged a lot. Uh, uh. You know, journalists tend to have an agenda. Uh-huh. Journalists tend to have an idea of what that story is going to be before they ever talk to the comic. I could say the exact same thing about photography. Yeah, in fact, I wanted to go there and find out, you know, given that these guys have had uncomfortable experiences, what is it you do, Dan, to, to, to put them at ease enough to get a good photograph? Well, uh, the, the, to, to start, it's, and I, it goes back to what Paul said about uh, him having his comic-to-comic uh, conversations. With me, they've, they've seen my work already. Most of them had, had already seen my work, and they had a comfort level that they don't have with other photographers that whereas you know if a magazine sends out a photographer that that guy's assignment is to take a picture of a comedian instantly thinking how do I make it funny you know my editor's going to want uh you know my editor's going to want a red nose and uh bunny ears or whatever and I didn't in in most of these I didn't have any kind of agenda I didn't have uh, a lot of them were were not even an assignment they were self-assigned and it was shooting for this book uh so the only person I had to please in my mind was them. You know, I want them to be I want them to be happy, the world's greatest critics. If they if they like my work, that to me is is what I need. Comedians, I mean, in their background, a lot of them I think are the guys that or or gals that would have been picked out as the loser, right? And that's how they got so good at what they do, you know? And that makes them very sharp and dangerous and scary too, right? right. I mean, a lot of people are afraid of comedians. Because I know they can they can cut you so quick. It's interesting. You're right. There's a lot of dissonance. There's tremendous power and complete powerlessness at the same time. You know, there's great control and yet victimization. It's a very it, that's one of the things that makes it so complex and rich in art form when it's done artfully. Um, um, I, I I do feel it's necessary. I know there are a lot of people who have gone to clubs and they've seen hack comics or they've seen lazy comics or they've seen comics of not necessarily high levels of artistry they've seen homophobic sexist racist material they've seen things that are intended to be irony but they're not they're just racist sexist homophobic you know uh, there is a lot of crap out there you know you have to remember that we're talking about an art form so just like there's a lot of crap in music there's a lot of crap in art a lot of crap in painting there's a lot of crap in everything there's crap in stand-up as well um, we chose to focus on people who we think are working at a very high level of mm. artistry mm. that touch us in some way, mean something to us. Um, but in that world, it, it's it's such a complicated art form. There's so many things going on and so many things that shouldn't really be working well together, but they do. And that's one of the things about the art form that I think is so interesting. It just encompasses amazing contradictions, which is real humanity. Yeah, no doubt. And it's a high wire act at its best. Uh, and there is some danger uh, in the content and maybe danger to the performer and even to the audience. But I was thinking, Dan, that, you know, you say the world's toughest critics. I mean, is it intimidating? And, and how do you get past that? It's not anymore. And I, I have a I have such a, a love and respect for it that I, I, I'm not. I, I It's not intimidating, no. Mm. Um, because I know that what I'm doing, they are going to like. I just have that's just my that's just my track record, and you know, 
maybe that's an arrogant thing to say, but can I, I can I, I interrupt? Can I, sure. can I toot your horn for you? Please toot yeah, away. Uh, George that. Carlin just a few weeks before he's before his death told Dan that his photograph of George Carlin was the one he most wanted to be remembered by and actually bought a print of it for his daughter. Mm. Uh, and he described it as, how did he say it? As you photograph from the inside out? You know, and that's um, that's the kind of thing that all the subjects get. They just get from Dan's work that they're being treated with respect and Dan has some gift that is not readily apparent in many other photographers that, that photograph them. What comes out in this visual, this image of a comedian... Um, that adds to what they bear on stage, you know. Well, you know what I what I'm actually trying to do often is to not have the performer, not be the performer. That it's uh, an an offstage moment that's 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 incredibly casual and 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 intimate. That they're letting they're they're letting us in, you know, they're letting us into who they are, versus. Someone that's mugging, or someone that's you know shooting for a headshot, or this sort of thing. That it's not, with the exception of Spinal Tap, no one's in costume in the in, in these photos. And almost know? nobody's mugging. Nobody nobody is mugging. I, I mean, think. Tenacious D right. maybe. Tenacious D maybe. <laughs> Eric Idle. But okay. then again, we're talking Jack Black, and when right. isn't he? Yeah, when isn't he? <laughs> that's right. Uh, so yeah, there's way. I mean there is there's a little bit of outrageousness <laughs> when it's uh whether it's uh maybe it's Eric maybe Eric Idle or that sort of thing, um but. I'm not sh- trying to show their act. Mm. I'm trying to show who they are, mm. Mm. and that's I think what comes what comes through, and especially in the aggregate. Now, now, now Paul, you, you said you went in, you know, to these these interviews without sort of an agenda, right? I mean, yeah, for just... the most part, there were some cases where there was something very specific that I wanted to right, talk about, right. but for the most part, it was really just I just want to talk to you like a comic. But but by the end of it, you cut down the interviews. Obviously, I'm imagining, you know, maybe an hour long conversation becomes a very tightly edited two and a half pages in the book, right? Representing a very small segment of the conversation. Yeah. And those, those excerpts tend to focus on a particular thing, whether it be politics or it be race or sex or... Or somebody's personal journey. Exactly. Or somebody's perspective on an issue. Exactly. Or, yeah, it's... And they are arranged in such a way that they, they make for one long, continuous sort of interesting conversation. When strung together. That's I'm delighted to hear that, and I and I just want to say this: if anybody finds this interesting enough to go out and get this book, please read it in sequence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. That delayed publication yeah. about a year getting that sequence right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Um, and you know, just as you did with with the film that you directed, The Aristocrats, you get to some of the the heart of of what makes us laugh or what is laughter. Speaking of which, you know, a couple of themes that do come up a lot: politics. Laughter, this strange business that you are in, for instance, where the ultimate measure of success is evoking an involuntary physiological reaction in people. Mm. The only other business I can think of that's like that is prostitution. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, and I actually think getting a laugh is probably a lot harder. uh, I know it is. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me. Try making a prostitute laugh. One of the the ongoing sort of debates that run through these these interviews, and see it as a debate, because some comedians say one thing, some say another. Some say, all I want is a laugh. It's really just about getting a laugh. Like, I think maybe Jay Leno says that. Right. Can we take a moment and talk about Jay Leno? Yeah. Because a lot of people are are a little bit taken aback by Jay Leno in the context of, of, of all these people who do subversive or mm-hmm. transgressive mm-hmm. or confrontational mm-hmm. comedy you know well, how does Jay Leno fit in there but that's sort of part of the bigger picture of of what the book is ultimately about in that Jay Leno is the biggest comic in America he's got the biggest platform of any comedian in America he does a monologue on a nightly basis five days a week about the day's events and chooses not to be political or uh, take sides or take any sort of a stand so his voice is an interesting one in context with everybody else. Why did he choose not to do the thing that everybody else in the book does? Uh, and I think it's very interesting that when you read his piece, you start to think a little bit differently. You start to sort of go, okay, all right, yeah, I mean, if you're one who is critical of Jay. Uh, and he has been you know, criticized quite a bit by, by fellow comedians, uh, and I think he makes a really good case for the choices that he makes. And interestingly, people think, Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien are opposite ends of the spectrum. 
but they both have the exact same philosophy about what it is that they're doing and and their approach to it. It just looks very different on Conan than it does mm. on Jay. Mm, indeed. But Conan, you know, uh, though more edgy, is still, you know, he's always seemed to me the freckle-faced boy-next-door kind of guy, right? Uh, his humor is not scary. But when he got really mad, you know, during the smackdown between uh, Conan and Leno, his humor <laughs> should have got... should smackdown. Uh, he got funnier, I thought. I thought he got really interesting. His last shows for The Tonight Show were, were great, were really great. Uh, I, I agree. I, I always think comedy is more interesting when there's a point to it. I, I always think that's why we chose this book, to focus on people who are trying to make points. That's not the only thing they're trying mm. to do. And first and foremost, they want you to laugh, mm. but they also are very concerned with making some sorts of points. And I, I'm, we're always more interested in that. It's just... It's just more challenging, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so, yes, I agree. I actually found his stuff on the last uh, few shows where he really was, there was stuff going on there and you knew it. Uh, I thought it was more interesting. But see, that's, again, you have the same thing with Leno and Conan in this regard as well. Neither one of them reveals anything really intimate or personal about themselves. That's right. You know, In their and, humor. And so through that, we did get to see something mm-hmm. personal and human, mm-hmm. you know? For sure. Um, I want to get back to uh, the... Uh, sort of nature of laughter in a minute. We sort of left that hanging, but now we've opened up a new Pandora's box, which is politics. And that's something that obviously concerns you personally. Your your humor is political sometimes, very outspoken. Yeah, I, I, again, I wouldn't really consider it political because it's not necessarily about specific politics or a party ideology. Mm, yeah. uh, it's more about just sort of questioning the status quo, uh, looking at things from a different angle, just not getting why everything is binary, why everything is red or blue. What What's that about? I don't get it, you know? It's more about finding some truth than it is any particular pol- uh, party line or political agenda. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that also emerges in the book. If there's anybody that f- feels like this book is going to be like some big liberal diatribe or something, I think you'd be really surprised to find out that very few people in the book actually agree with themselves or any agenda you're aware of. They all have their own particular way of processing things and, and what they feel about it. True, but I want you to take a crack at a question that a lot of us have thought about, I think. Uh, and Dan, I'd like your answer, too. If we look at cutting-edge comedians and comedy shows, and we had to guess at political leanings, we would say almost to a one, left or libertarian, but we would not say right-wing. I mean, Fox News actually talked about creating their version of The Daily Show. A lot of people knew off the bat that wasn't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. The only guy in your book that I know of who identifies slightly rightward is P.J. O'Rourke, maybe somebody else too, but there Penn is... Gillette, Colin Quinn. Ben Gillette, a little Colin bit. Well, Quinn. he's libertarian, but well, again... Well, they all are, really. But right wing, and, and so there's there's this huge imbalance in the comedy world. Well, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because really, if you read P.J. O'Rourke, you read Penn Gillette, you read Doug Stanhope, you read uh, Colin Quinn, uh, they all identify as libertarian, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Or, or at least identify as not liberal, not left-wing. Right. But that is a really good indication of how nobody really plays by party lines. Maybe so, but there is something in it, it seems to me, in the very nature, at least, of American comedies, that it, that it tends to be more concentrated on the left than it does on the right. Can you think of a really Isn't good... Isn't that primarily all arts, though? Yeah, that is, that's true. Well, that and is true. I, think, I think, if I can hazard a guess, it's such a big, huge, uh, abstract concept here. Uh, I think what it boils down to is that uh, most artists, and I'll talk about comedians in particular, uh, are outsiders. They all feel mm-hmm. unconnected. They all feel, some in some way in their lives, they were the outside person. Uh, they were the other in some way. Uh, even as comedians now, they're still other. Not only are they other in, in terms of life, you know, but they're also other in terms of show business. It's a weird part of show business that has its own set of rules and issues that have nothing to do with the other part of show business. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. So they do have an outsider perspective, and I think that brings one to a humanistic place. And uh, I guess a lot of humanistic attitudes and perspectives ultimately sort of end up on the progressive end of the political spectrum. But what they really care about is injustice, uh, truth to power, uh, equality, um, um, uh, respect. Uh, Interestingly, a lot of them, I believe, do do say things in the book that are in many ways empowering. And what every comedian has done is taken their damage and turned it into an asset. 
you know, and there's something empowering about that and about seeing so many different journeys and so many different approaches to it and realizing that, well, if we're all damaged, we all need to sort of own where we're at and figure out how to make something creative out of it, ra- creative out of it rather than destructive in our lives. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I think that conservatives in general, although I think that the term conservative is, is a misnomer, but the, the right wing they, they, they tend to be in a safe place for themselves, and what they're doing is trying to protect what they have. So whether it's whether it's protecting their wealth or their privilege, that's their main thing, and and from it feeds out all the the branches of of, of xenophobia and racism and all these other things. Whereas comics are that other thing. They're the they they came up as the thing that that conservatives are trying to protect against. You know how you said comics are dangerous? Right. Well, as as a result, they have always been identified as other from people who find mm-hmm. some sort of b- bursting of the bubble of pretentiousness dangerous or some sort of, you know, pointing to a truth that nobody wants to look at is found dangerous. I think that's where the relationship mm. is. Mm. You know, we look at the origins of, of, of film comedy, Charlie Chaplin, always representing the poor, the little guy, the, the outcast. Um, we have something, I think, that may be a first in American history. We have an actual professional, accomplished comedian, not an unintentional comedian, who is a U.S. senator. <laughs> he's he's not in your book, which is interesting. I thought he might be a really interesting guy to talk to. Good, you try and get a hold of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we tried. We tried. <laughs> I even uh, I even offered uh, I, I even offered to uh, make a donation, uh, and if we could just get five minutes with Al and uh, his press guy said that's nice, it's flattering, it's also illegal. Uh, well, we're talking about the, the junior senator from Minnesota, Al Franken, of course, and I wonder what that'll do to his comedy. I mean, you know, uh, Janine Garofalo makes an interesting point in the book about. Oh no, I'm sorry, I think it was Liz Winstead who says that he may have been more effective as a comedian and a commentator on things <laughs> than he actually can be as a senator because, as a senator, he has to work within the system. Mm-hmm. As a comedian, he doesn't have to play by any rules, and he can speak his mind no matter what. You know, uh, which is an interesting viewpoint, an interesting perspective. But a, a well-delivered barb on the floor of the Senate could have, you know, real consequences or real uh, powerful consequences. I remember him doing it. He did an excellent speech to the correspondents one time. Oh, yeah, the White House Correspondents yeah, exactly. Center. Let's get back to the, the laughter because it's such a fundamental part of what uh, is sort of the measure of a successful gig, making people laugh. When you're When you're performing, Paul, I mean, is that your measure? Do you think, okay, I hear the laughter, I know I've done good, and if I don't hear the laughter, I've somehow bombed? Well, you know, that's an odd thing, because when you're talking about comedians who are working at a a multi-layered level, Mm -hmm. um, the laughter is the edge of our canvas, really. That's sort of like, that has to be there, and... um, uh, how that happens is what makes you unique and where all those other levels come in. So we absolutely have to create the laughter for you. That's our job. That's that's the form that is what defines the form of stand-up comedy. The weird thing about it though is that uh you know, they say Eskimos have uh, however 700 words for snow because they know the nuances of it. Comics know the difference between laughs. We can tell it's really interesting to talk to another comic about a particular laugh they got or you got and and how they can recognize that's not the laugh I wanted, you know, or just something we're getting into the inarticulable here. Uh, Is that a word? Yes. Uh, um, It's very hard to describe, but but there is the right kind of laugh and the wrong kind of laugh. And I think Patrice O'Neill, actually, I think in the in Satiristas, mentions that um, uh, he said, I, when I got to a point where I knew how to kill, he said, that's just something that I knew how to do. I knew I could get the laugh. I know I can kill. I know I can make the audience laugh. And then it started to be, what else is there besides yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So do you have a type of laughter that you aim for or do you try to play the, the, you know, the scale of laughter at various points? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the map, but the things that mean the most to me and the things that mean the most to the the people in this book are laughs that acknowledge or that, that somehow manifest, uh, an idea as well, or a real, a realization or a revelation or some sort of understanding, uh, uh, getting connected in some way that they hadn't been before to this idea. Uh, this is very hard to articulate. Mm. How about how about laughter that isn't satisfying, like what the UCB said? 
remember? Uh, what was that? Clapter. Oh, Clapter, yeah, yeah. You, you're more familiar with this one than I am. How, it, how'd it go? It's to do when, when, when people uh, clap and laugh at the same time, and they're really what they're really doing is, is sort of uh, congratulating themselves on, the, on getting the joke. Mm. Right, mm. right. That's something that's very common in a lot of newer comedy today. Is um, This is something that I'm, I'm actually really interested in, uh, is the overwhelming movement in the art form right now. Uh, in the same way that painting had uh, abstract expressionism and pop and all that sort of stuff, the movement in comedy right now is predominantly ironic detachment, which is interesting. And that doesn't mean it's not funny, and I'm not judging it, but it does mean that there is a great dearth of people speaking from the heart and people really talking about what what they believe. Um, it all seems couched and arch and wink and nod. And, you know, sometimes it almost seems as if comedians are some comedians are apologizing for the fact that they're doing this in the form of stand up comedy. Ah, interesting. Now, of course, this debate is, is another one running through the interviews here, and that is character comedy like Stephen Colbert does. Everything Colbert does is behind the character Stephen Colbert to the point where a lot of people have no idea who the real Stephen Colbert is. Right. And he's brilliant at it. You're a great admirer of his, obviously. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you've got Penn Jillette mm-hmm. saying, it's safe. He's hiding behind the mask. Calling right. him out on it. He right. can do anything he wants because there's no accountability uh, by Stephen Colbert, the real Stephen Colbert. Right. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, th- this is a great example that plays right off of what I just said about ironic detachment because there is a difference between irony and ironic detachment. Mm-hmm. Because while I believe that Stephen Colbert plays on irony, and yes, he embodies a character which is a distance from him himself, it is not detached. There is a real emotional connection there. There's a real intellectual involvement there. Uh, and he's done his homework and is so skilled at what he does that he can actually have an emotional experience as this other character. I mean, if an actor is playing the role of somebody whose wife was just killed in a car wreck and they're having an emotional experience, that's not who they are. But that is not detached. you know. So Stephen Colbert is somebody who operates at that very sophisticated level uh, and a very difficult edge to ride on of being protected, yet also being vulnerable to a certain degree. Sandra Bernhard is a really interesting uh, case in that regard because Sandra Bernhard is essentially doing a character on stage. Absolutely. It, it is the character of the person, of the woman she always wanted to be, in control, empowered, uh, sexualized, beautiful regardless of what you think, you know, uh, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so she's playing a character but the character that she's chosen to play is emotionally vulnerable. Mm. So I, we're into existential issues here. Back to, to, to laughter and different kinds of laughter. Now, you mentioned a kind of clapter, which is self-congratulatory laughter. Is that what you called it? By You said UCB, Dan. You meant yeah. Upright Citizens yes, Brigade. Exactly. The members was the one of that troop you guys interviewed as well. Um, where, whereas there is another kind of laughter that I like a lot, and I find myself, this may be weird, but I watch myself watching comedy and why am i laughing and a lot of times i'm laughing um let's say i'll give you an example say tracy um morgan delivers a really crazy line on 30 rock right and i laugh and i then i think i'm laughing at the audacity of the writer putting that line in a character's mouth and i love it and it's a joyful kind of laughter but it's a meta laughter i'm laughing at the craft itself yeah, well, you know, we're in that we're we're in that weird culture right now. It's you know where anybody can do a TV show, uh, make it a podcast, and all of a sudden, what's the difference between them and and anybody who actually has a TV show? You know, just just a question of scale. You know, we're in that weird place where where illusion and reality are kind of all mishmashed all over the place I think there's a lot of that and I think that also relates to what I was talking about about ironic detachment like I wonder if the writer wanted you to be aware and self-conscious about about how you're laughing at this joke or if it was just bad character writing you know for Tracy Morgan's character I (laughs) I don't know I couldn't even begin to tell anymore but the fact that you are acknowledging that and understanding that that speaks to what I was talking about, that there is some sort of a difference. I mean, most mm. people, when they're laughing, they don't, they don't think about that mm. kind of thing. We're really talking about comedy as an art form uh, in, in really dancing on a pin kind of a way here. Um, 
the book is also really funny, and most of these people are, are, are just really funny. Um, we're just shining a light on, on, on this weird stuff. Oh, are you getting nervous that we make it sound too intellectual? No, I, I just, it, it's really important. <laughs> it's really important to not, it's hard to talk this way without sounding pretentious. Mm. And if it sounds pretentious, it's, we're no longer talking about comedy. Uh, so I, I kind of like to clarify that what we're really talking about here is art. Yeah. Not comedy per yeah, se. Yeah. We're talking about art through the lens of comedy. Well, you know, you make a, a impassioned point in your introduction uh, that the people who practice this art well are extremely perceptive, extremely smart individuals. In fact, you say to the audience, us, the readers, they know more than you. <laughs> They're smarter than you. <laughs> they read more than they you. They read more than you. Yeah. Well, I, I, let me clarify that if, in case anybody <laughs> thinks that was an arrogant statement. Quite simply, and, and again, I have to specify, the people in this book are a select group of people. Not This is not true for everybody who's doing comedy, but we certainly chose people who do do this kind of thing. But they, they have to be smarter than the average audience mm. member. I mean, it's kind of an adage. If you want to do stand-up comedy, you've got to mm. be a notch above and a step ahead of your audience. Mm. And their audience is the average American. Um, and, and, and you show, I mean, not, again, not trying to make your book sound dead serious, but for those of us who love comedy, it's fascinating because you show um, comedians wrestling with their art, uh, arguing, uh, grappling with issues. You've got Robert Klein grappling with the issue of so-called political correctness. And he defends, you know, a certain sensitivity in what he calls decency, you know, that not saying, uh, you know, well, I guess I'll exercise some decency and say not saying the F word for a gay person or not saying the N word for a black person is actually just being a decent human being. It's not being a cowed, play it safe, politically correct person. So you've got Robert Klein arguing with that issue. You've got a fascinating interview with um, surely one of the smartest guys in show business, Mike Nichols, uh, who was a comedian at one time, but became a film director. A groundbreaking comedian. Yeah, and a groundbreaking film director. And he, interestingly, talks about things like um, the comic's disease, which is becoming a slave to the god of laughter. Right. And he, he actually points to, like, Steve Martin, I think, and Jack Benny as two guys who were not slaves to that. But I've never heard a comic even talk about that. Well, if you see Pink Panther too, you know that. Yeah, you know that that's the case. Um, <laughs> but see, that's that's one of the things that I tried tried to do in these conversations. You know, rather than have it be, oh, this is an absolute about comedy, or I do this, or whatever. I wanted people to experience the conversations that that smart, caring, mm. professional comedians actually have. I don't think people understand the issues that we deal with over a, a, a joke. Mm. You know, mm. we really do grapple with what's the intent? Who's the victim? Is this saying what I want it to say? Mm. Is this right? Where is this in terms of level of skill? Where is this in terms of, you know, how much work I've put into it? And all those sorts of things that you really would never in a million years think went into a joke. Mm. And and so that's what I wanted to put in there. I wanted, I wanted people to see that Robert Klein isn't just writing jokes and he's not just making a choice to not say these words because, you know, I'm not supposed to. I mean, he has a, there's real values behind it. I also have a... It's, I'm glad you mentioned Robert Klein because he's an idol of mine and in a strange way, one of the key reasons that I'm that I I became a stand-up comedian and uh so to sit there and actually argue with him was awesome uh but we we talk about taste and crossing lines the two of us both dissect together a, a Sam Kinison piece uh and I think you really get a sense of 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 exactly how we have to look at these things and we use another comics you know, work as an example of how what what went on there and how that's not right or that is right mm. or how he sacrificed or compromised the point or whatever. And I, I just think it's probably surprising for people to think how much thought mm. and and how much dialogue we can have about somebody's joke. Let me ask you this: Do you, do you guys know? Uh, you must know this because you're also audience members as well as guys on stage. But do you know how much many of us in the audience are rooting for you? that we don't want you to fail, and we will agonize if you bomb or if you die. Yeah, well, uh, you're not in every crowd I play. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are some mean people who want you to die, and there are hecklers which we could talk about. But uh, 
But there are a lot of us who want more than anything for you to succeed, and we will actually do our best to laugh. And if yeah. we can't, if we can't pull it off, we feel very sad for all of us. And you're out twenty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's true. <laughs> uh, I've done I've done a, a bit of producing uh, shows. We did uh, when when the Holy City Zoo closed here in San Francisco. I was on staff there. A club. And there was yeah, yeah. the Holy City Zoo um, on Clement Street, and there was nowhere to do. There were no stages at that time. Um, because the comedy bust was happening, but then there was no place, there were no open mics, and there was no place to, to for for people to get up. So I started producing shows with some comedians, and what I would run into, and I would fi- find, and for some reason it was more with women, I don't know why, but their reluctance to go to small comedy shows was was couched not with the idea that they might see bad comedy, but that they might feel bad for a comedian who is bombing that's that's that is fascinating i've run into that a lot of people feel because they've seen bad comedy or they've been to open mic nights where you know you have to sort of you know endure somebody else's pain it's it's more painful for them than you you know uh um yeah that uh, but i again i don't know what people's immediate experience with comedy is you know most people i believe know comedy in the way that we know top 40 music that they know just the obvious stuff that's put out in front. They they haven't explored more interesting or artful things or or um, you know something that's not just on TV when they turn it on. Um, and maybe they've only gone to you know comedy shows where somebody cajoled them into coming because it's an open mic night and there's not a big crowd. You know, so people will tend to kind of have a first impression. That's why when I mentioned before about how, you know, there's a lot of comedy out there that's racist, sexist, homophobic, that's all those kinds of things. Yeah, that's not the stuff that we're talking Mm. about. Mm. But we are talking about some stuff that is often tarred with the same brush simply because people aren't aware that it is an art form and there are layers and it's not always right up front. Mm. Well, you know... one one of the stories of comedy, the history of comedy, uh, is is pushing the boundaries, right? I mean, as soon as something gets too easy, a real comedian is going to want to see if they can break it a little bit or a lot. So mm-hmm. Andy Kaufman taking it to the point where people didn't know whether to laugh, to leave, to to call the police, you know, and <laughs> and and the laughter there becomes really anxious and and nervous. Yeah, right? what Andy Kaufman did was he took the laugh off the stage and the punchline, and he put it somewhere in the room where how it's being received. And um, the aristocrats did that as well. And that's actually, that's why I always tell people, if you're, if you're going to rent the movie, rent it and watch it with a handful of friends because it's a whole different experience than sitting there watching it on yourself because a big part of what's interesting about it is how nobody reacts the same to the same things. Uh, and yeah, and I think a lot of really good comedies like that. George Carlin certainly made, a, you know, made hay with that in a big way. You know how how people were going to respond to his stuff, and how how different people hit the edges at different places, and you know is is, is a big part of of what drove him. As a producer, I love to watch I love to watch the front row during a show, and just you know, and you'll see you know you pick out eight or ten people that you want to watch and see their reactions, and it's it's great with something like Stanhope or someone that's really causes these reactions. But sometimes you just never you never know. Like you can have uh, someone that's got their arms crossed the whole time and they're they're barely laughing at all, and then afterwards they come up to you. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's with that person? I mean, what's the deal? <laughs> um, Patrice O'Neill puts it best. I think he said, "You see, people have the wrong idea about comedy. People think comedy everybody's supposed to be laughing." He goes, "That's not the way it's supposed to be." If you got 100 people, what it's supposed to be is 50 people laughing, and the other 50 people are just horrified. <laughs> like, that's real comedy. That's my kind of comedy. <laughs> and hopefully they're members of the same couple, so they'll argue about it or maybe even split up over it later. That's, that's Are you familiar with the comedian George Wallace? No. He's uh, an amazing presence. His charisma is unbelievable. His comedy chops are breathtaking. So I, I watch him work, and I'm mesmerized. I'm like, how do you do this? And I, I once asked him, I said, you know, what, like, what, why do you do this? Like, what, what is it about that you're able to make all of these people just 
they're so happy. It's like a revival meeting. People are, are just happier to be alive. And I'm so envious of that. <laughs> and I said, how do you do that? He goes, look, you know, this group of people will never be in a room together at the same time. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for everybody. I want it to be memorable. I want, it to, I want them to not think about their problems. I don't want them to think about the issues of the world. I want they, they work all week. They take their hard-earned money. This is the big night out. I want them to walk out, walking on air, of just being happy to be alive mm. for the first time that week. Mm. And I thought, that's the difference between me and you, George. <laughs> what I really want, what really makes me happy, is to think of everybody having an argument on a car ride home. That thrills me no end. I don't know why. I, I, I don't know. Well, you'll be very pleased to know this. The other day I was refreshing my memory on the aristocrats. I don't have it on DVD, so I went to YouTube, found a few clips. And the comment below one of the clips was, this scene pretty much ended my relationship. I took my girlfriend on a date. I laughed, she didn't, and she never really talked to me again. Yeah, I've had a number of people tell me that. I actually, I'm very aware of the fact that the aristocrats has become a deal breaker in many relationships. But you know that what? Awesome. I think it's a better gauge than a lot of other things. Because uh, as Jimmy Carr, a terrific English comedian, uh, puts it, he, he believes that uh, a sense of humor is really the closest thing you can come to a sexual attraction. You know, what one person finds funny, what, what, what resonates with a person, what their sensibility of, of, of what's funny is, is it's their own. And you can't tell somebody that they're wrong. Whatever your kink is, it's your kink. Nobody's going to, you know, you're not going to be able to deny it and you're not going to be able to fake it and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and I think that's really true. And I, I really, I don't know how people who have completely different senses of humor can stay married and be truly intimate with each other. I, I, I cannot comprehend. I can, I can, I can remember vividly when I had first met who would become my wife, Lisa. Uh, we were, we were in North Beach, and uh, and I can, I can specifically remember her doing a joke about fisting, and I thought, now this is one I can hang with. Yep. You know, um, you guys are reminding me of some of the the other fascinating. Um, issues that come up in the book, one of them is censorship and the way censors work and how arbitrary the standards can be and how silly and some of the, the ways that uh, comedians and, and guys who produce TV shows and, and films have, have come up with to get around them. Old technique, it goes back to days before uh, any of the people you interview, but for instance, Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park fame bring it up, which is that you put in something that you want to give the censors that they'll surely take out so they'll be satisfied that they took out something and they'll leave chips. something else in. Bargaining chip. So in the case of Team America, uh, their feature film starring puppets, they had puppets doing scatological things, which they fully knew the censors would take out. Right. Wound up in the, one of the DVD editions, but it wasn't intended to ever go up on the big screen, I guess. No. They, they, in fact, their wry conclusion to it is, so the reason you've ever seen puppets having... Uh, golden showers and, and scatological sex is because of the MPAA. It wouldn't even have existed if it weren't for them. Uh, but yeah, the bargaining chip thing is is interesting. And then again, it's picked up with a, another uh, duo, Vernon Chapman and John Lee of Wonder Shows and Fame, who, who talk about they throw something in as a bargaining chip and the network has no problem with it. And then all of a sudden they have to actually do it. Well, they had the, they had the most, maybe the, the funniest anecdote about the censorship thing uh, ever. Uh, now, first of all, I think a lot of our listeners probably won't know what Wonder Chosen was. It was a MTV comedy show. It was it was, usually, a, it was a, a, a twisted Sesame Street. It was Sesame Street on very bad acid. Yeah. It was yeah. some of the darkest comedy ever on TV. Absolutely. And, uh, and just very challenging, weird, and fascinating. It, it was the kind of comedy, just like with Andy Kaufman, where they actually got punched and attacked for doing some of the things that they did. But they also ran into censors. They had a uh, and this comes up in one of the interviews you did. Um, they had a, a show in which they wanted to depict a puppet on a cross. Right. And they were going to crucify a puppet. They were going to crucify a yeah. puppet. A lot of puppets in their show um, subjected to bad things, and <laughs> or subjecting people to bad things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, and the censors said to them, um, "No, you can't show Jesus. You can show God because God doesn't exist, but you can't show Jesus because he's the Son of God." <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. This was actually said to them, and they insisted you leave it in the interview. <laughs> right. And I thought they'd be pleased that we get it on the radio. As well. I, you know what? I'll be sure to call them and let them know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's real. A lot of weird things happen like that. You know, a lot of weird things where they tr- you just try and jump through hoops to try and make some weird, arbitrary kind of. It's just nutty. Uh, also, which which keeps coming up with FCC or standards and practices, where the question is, who is saying this? If you know, if it's it, was this written by a black guy? If it is, then you can do it. Oh, if yes. not, you can't. Or how how in South Park, uh, how Mr. Garrison. This is also Vernon and and John talk about how in South Park, you can have Mr. Garrison say faggot, but another character in the show, voiced by the same person, cannot. So that they're actually applying a, a citizenship to a cartoon <laughs> right. character. They're actually defining the yes, characters yes. as separate from the actor playing it, which is doubly ironic when you get to the fact that if you're a black person doing a, a racially sensitive joke about black people, that's okay. But if you're a white person doing the same joke, you can't do it. They've now taken that standard and put it onto completely imaginary two-dimensional drawings. Right. It's it's just so surreal. We should put Colin, that in context. Colin, yeah. Mr. Garrison. Yes, Mr. Garrison. He's gay. The gay, Mr. The gay character. Gay so character. he can use the word faggot on this show. The, sens- the censor says it's okay because he's not going to presumably offend gay people since he's, quote, gay himself, this cartoon. Right. Uh, in the case of the two Wonder Shows and guys, Vernon Chapman and... John Lee. John Lee. They were asked, uh, you know, about some racial humor, and they said, "Well, a black person could say this." Well, Vernon Chapman, right, says, "Well, I'm half black, so I guess it's okay." I right. Do they it. had never met the censor, <laughs> so the censor never actually saw what they looked like, and he goes, "Well, if it was somebody black saying that, it would be okay." And Vernon Chapman goes, "Well, I'm half black," and they go, "Oh, all right, no problem." Okay, so so this sounds <laughs> so blatant. <laughs> it's blatantly silly. On the other hand, it really is a rule that operates, I think, in in comedy. Let's face it: when it comes to race. Um, black comedians were the real trailblazers. I mean, Lenny Bruce did racial material, but not many white comedians, no white comedians, were going to the places that uh, Richard Pryor was going and well, Paul, Paul and, Mooney. Who and before them, really, most important, the the man who really, truly broke that barrier was Dick Gregory. Absolutely. And he deserves a lot of credit that no one, no one really remembers how, how radical his stuff was. Really important figure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I love also how P.J. O'Rourke, when I asked P.J. O'Rourke if... if, if People telling jokes, comedy, satire, if any of it makes any difference. He points to Dick Gregory and he said, you know, Dick Gregory, the comedy that Dick Gregory did, and at the time also some lesser knowns but equally important like Godfrey Cambridge, you know, uh, uh, black performers like that, the work that they were doing really, truly did have an impact. It changed the way people perceived race. Did it do it on a big grand scale? Who knows? Obviously, it's playing to a, a small segment of the population. But as P.J. O'Rourke puts it, when you laugh at somebody, you are acknowledging them as a fellow human being. Mm. You know, when you laugh at Dick Gregory's jokes, you you are giving him equal respect. You know, uh, and uh, and that's a really powerful point. So that's a great example of a case where, quite literally, a comedian actually had a big impact. Mm. You know, we were talking just a moment ago about the fact that the um, the suits at the networks and so on are concerned about who says something. Who, who who says it makes a difference? A Chinese comedian can make a joke about Chinese culture. You know, a black comedian can make a joke about black people and so on and so forth. Um, the The ones who really have been more constrained are the white comedians in this regard. It seems to me that when it comes to racial, you know, the, exposing the race problem in America, black comedians have been essential. White comedians have had to be on the sidelines a bit in that. And I'm still waiting for the Asian Paul Mooney. Yeah, right, right. Um, that's an interesting point. And, you know, in the book that comes up, obviously there's there's the absurdity of how when you really put into practice that idea that, oh, a black comedian can say this, a Chinese comedian can say that, when you really put that into practice, it just becomes this bizarre, you know, jumping through hoops, and it's it becomes absurd, patently absurd. Uh, that's true. But at the same time, there is a, a certain amount of respect for the intent of it. It's just not, it's just been bastardized, usually by people who, you know, abuse it to get control or whatever. But, but it's, its intent is really important. I mean, you know, there's certainly everybody in, in Satirist is is concerned about, you know, racial issues. They're sensitive to, to these kinds of things. 
But what happens is um, in an effort to demonstrate that sensitivity, some truth gets lost. Uh, and um, as a matter of fact, there's an episode of The Green Room uh, on Showtime. This is your forthcoming show? Yes. Your upcoming There's show. an episode where we get into a lot of racial humor. And um, the interesting thing about it is that it's how interracial friends really, truly behave with one another. Where you sort of got, you've gone past racist to the point where racism is so stupid and everything stupid is funny. I mean, human beings being, doing, saying stupid things is funny. So when you're actually past it, you're now in the place where when you're really friends with multinational people and multicolored, multiracial people, you do make those jokes about one another because you know what it's really about and what it's not really about. Well, sometimes it can be about you playing the fool, playing the idiot racist, right? That right. can be sort of fun. Yeah. and that's uh, You're making fun of the racist by playing the racist. You're not making the racist comment yourself. And everybody can laugh at the silly person who you're personifying. Um, but um, you say, Paul, in, in uh, at one point in the book that you have never met, as far as you can remember, a comedian or a musician who is racist. Yeah. That, as far as you know, that's you think there's something experience. inherent in comedy that, that uh, is sort of... Uh, yes, I do think there's something inherent in it, in the same way that there's something inherent in music about this as well. Because if you're an artist as a musician, if you're an artist as a comedian, all that matters is, is this person mm. funny? Are mm. they good? Are they smart? Are they taking me to new places? Am I you know, experiencing this like, wow, this is something that I need to aspire to? Anybody who works that way... It doesn't matter if you have 10 heads. And that's one of the beautiful things about comedy, again, is that um, it is so inclusive. It really does. You can be ugly. You can be tall. You can be black. You can be Chinese. You can be male, female. You can be transgendered, transsexual. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing with musicians. If you can wail on your instrument, dude, you're in. Mm. Which is not to say that all humor isn't racist, because there's plenty of racist humor. It has, you know, a lot of American history is full of jokes at the expense of black people, right? Yeah, and that's that's what I mean about about the the um, the sensitivity towards that in issues of censorship and what have you is all laudable in intent. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question we've come a long way from just accepting what we accepted, you know, generations ago, uh, not even one generation ago. There's no question that that's progress and that some discipline had to be taken to do that. But eventually it's got to get down to an individual's integrity. And when you're talking about comedy, the problem when you do blanket uh, uh, um, admonishments like that is you you eliminate irony and texture and depth and and satire and you just eliminate some of the most beautiful aspects of the art form. Mm. Dan, you know, even like Miles Davis hated Whitey as a concept but still played with Bill Evans. And, and is a ranger Gil Evans, yeah. Yeah. Which is a, gr a great point, actually, that Patrice O'Neill makes in Satirista's, where he talks about white really isn't even about white anymore. He said white is like Hitler's mustache. It's just a symbol now, you know. We don't really hate white people. We just hate the fact that, you know, we were freed as slaves, no reparations. Now we live next door to our tormentors, and nobody has to pay a price for mm. it. You know, it's not really that we hate white people. We just hate the concept of white people, <laughs> you know. Paul Mooney, who you interview, um, and I'll remind listeners that, you know, he's not only a stand well-known stand-up in his own right, but he's also contributed, you know, a lot of very important writing to the history of comedy for Richard Pryor. He was in many ways a, a kind of a muse to Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor in Living Color, the, the short-lived but very uh, important TV show. Um, maybe it wasn't that short-lived, a couple years. Uh, but uh, Paul Mooney, you know, does a lot of material that actually is in the, the old Richard Pryor vein of white people do this, white people do that. And a lot of his stuff is absolutely pretty hard on white people. I mean, mm -hmm. really hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like, there's no qualification. It's not like some white people do this. It's like white people do this. And the thing that's usually being pointed to is pretty craven. You know what I mean? But he makes a distinction, I would imagine, between actual white human beings and the you know, uppercase white people that he's talking about in his I, routine. I think so. Certainly, yeah. certainly Paul travels in white circles like anybody else. And he was a friend of Michael Richards, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And you guys discussed the infamous Michael Richards meltdown, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the implosion. Um, 
Paul Mooney, who just like Richard Pryor, you know, in his heyday, was a big fan of the N-word, a very essential part of his... <laughs> he says, what does he say? He says, I was a lover to that word. Exactly. I was an ambassador for that word. I was an ambassador word. for that word. And, and whereas Richard Pryor gave it up after going to Africa and deciding that it was a degrading term, Paul Mooney held on to it until it was Michael Richards' episode right. that finally persuaded him to stop using it. Um, but what do you, uh, you know, you didn't interview Michael Richards, but we're, we've been talking about race, we've been talking about the line up to which humor can go and beyond which it should never go. What happened to that guy? What was what was that about? Do you have any theories, either of you guys? Uh, yeah, and actually Paul Mooney hits a lot of, of, of what I believe is true there, too. Bottom line, pure and simple, is, uh, first of all, he was being heckled. He had been doing material about words you're not supposed to say and all that sort of stuff, which most people aren't aware of because they've only seen a clip. Um, um, what Michael tried to do was a was something that a comic who was on top of his game and good enough and sharp enough to do could have succeeded and turned it around and actually made a valuable point. Uh, but Michael Richards has been out of the game for a while. The landscape has changed. He didn't have what it took right then and there to pull off a very, very high degree of, of difficulty move. So, so you're saying that his rant, which was N-word, dis, N-word, that, was not really a racist rant at all, but was rather an attempt at sort of, you know, humor. I, I, I believe so, because if you, watch the, if you watch the clip, when you see, most people think he snaps mm -hmm. and goes on this rant. But comics who watch it can see that, no, he snaps deeper into the rant he's starting to do something consciously and it's only when he realizes that he's in deeper than he can handle when, until he really snaps uh -huh. the snap isn't at the beginning of that rant uh -huh. the snap is at some point where he realizes okay this was a bad idea uh -huh. and i don't know if i'm going to be able to pull out of it uh -huh. and that's the unfortunate thing is that you know uh um there's real serious uh, as uh, i think it was bill burr puts it real serious redneck cracker you ain't around you ain't from around here boy racism in the world you know but for some reason uh all of a sudden michael richards is now the poster boy for all things racist and um when really what it was was just a bad comic moment and the truth is that if you if you were running cameras in a hundred comedy clubs that night you would have seen a lot of the same kind of thing handled the right way by other people handled poorly by different people whatever you know it's it's all fair game yeah, well, the reason I asked you is because when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, he's doing a Lenny Bruce thing. You know, he's it, he's doing a reductio ad absurdum. That's on... exactly what he was attempting, I believe. Uh-huh. He's not even sure anymore because it was such a devastating... I've had a lot of conversations with him about this. Oh, you have? Yeah, as a matter of fact, what I, uh, I wanted to do something that I thought would be very interesting. I've never said this before. Uh, uh, I wanted to do something very interesting. It came very close to making it happen, but I thought it would be really interesting if we took that phenomenon of what happened to Michael Richards and took it out of the discourse in general about race and put it back in the context of comedy. And I wanted to do a roast with Michael Richards and some of the greatest black comics in America at the Apollo uh, to just say, all right, you know, this happened in the context of comedy. Now let's give you your payback in the context of comedy. And I think it would have actually enhanced the discourse because some truths would have been spoken from both sides where you could actually see somebody manifesting some growth. And that's a big problem that we have. And Bill Burr speaks very eloquently about this in Satiristas. He says, you know, we're not allowed to, to say, you know, we did do some racist things. We did say some racist things. We did have racist thoughts. We were, we did buy into some racist philosophy, but we outgrew them and became better people. Well, you can't say that. You have to be a saint or you have to be totally evil. And that's nonsense, you know. So I thought it would have been really interesting to take it back into the realm of comedy and really have that dialogue take place where people aren't trying to hurt each other. They're just trying to reveal the ugliness of whatever truth it is and just get it out in the open, you know. Well, to a one, the comedians that we talked to about that, not one of them said, yeah, Michael Richards, what a racist. They, they all Im immediately turned it on the, the failure, his craft failure. And uh, I can remember, I can remember talking to Harry Shearer about it right after it had happened, and and he 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 just nodded his head, he just shook his head, and he said, "Rookie mistake." Yeah, exactly. Oh. Exactly. As, oh. as Paul Mooney put it, he had hung up his guns, right. and he just oh, didn't have yeah. what it take to do, you know, to, to, to have that gunfight. And what was and what was it that set him off? 
It was someone telling him that he wasn't funny. That's Which, right. to a comedian, is the equivalent of calling a black person the N-word. <laughs> See, well, I said I said earlier that comedians uh, struck me as being uncomfortable in their skins. And, and Paul, you said, yeah, maybe not so much. But thin-skinned, at least about some things. The movie Heckler, you guys have both seen it, right? Yes, I have seen it. Yeah, I interviewed the director, Michael Addis. Uh, have you seen it? Not yet. Oh, you haven't seen it, Dan. Um, this movie explores the phenomenon of heckling of comedians and of, of actors and gets into criticism of other kinds as well. But the degree to which many uh, comedians just really can't take it, you know? I mean, some of them have great comeback lines, but they're really angry. I mean, they, they talk to this director well, about really because, hating it. Because it's very frustrating because, you know, we've prepared something that we want to do. We have an agenda. We have something. There's a reason that we're up there, you know? And those very same people wouldn't sit at the ballet and go, Hey, hey, what is that, a tutu? <laughs> well, yeah, you look gay in that tutu. You know, Real nice, just, twinkle toes. Yeah, nice job there, twinkle toes. Uh, you know, yet it seems to some people perfectly reasonable to do that in a comedy club. You know, uh, I don't know where that sort of misconception happened, but well, it, well it, you know, it's it, this is getting back to you know your relationship to it. It is an art form. Maybe it deserves as much respect as classical music or you know great painting. On the other hand, it's an art form all about disrespect, and therefore. Um, should we bow down and should we be quiet, good little folks while a guy's doing his act, or should we be irreverent too? It, it puts the audience in an odd place that way. You know what I mean? You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I get all of that, but somewhere along the line is the simple unspoken contract between performer and audience. Mm -hmm. The very first line in the book, which is from my preface, is that I've always respected the disrespectful. And I mean, we're, we're celebrating the disrespectful, but... We we also we also recognize that that what it is they're doing is their their targets are on you know they they are on target and they're not the, the these people they're not attacking the little guy you know they're they are it's truth to power it's 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 the little man trying to bring down the big man it's not you know you're you're not you're not picking on little small but guys. would it kill, would it kill mo comedy mo though would it kill comedy if if you comedians started being treated like maestros, you know? Um, I, um, I, I certainly don't think that that's necessary. I mean, that's a big gap, <laughs> you know? Um, 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 and and it, look, bottom line, really, what it boils down to is most hecklers, they don't have an ideology that they really want to discuss with mm. you. They're not really taking issue with a point that you made so much as they are looking for attention and had a few too many to drink. That's pure and simple. That's 99% of it right there. You know, so that's what we're dealing at. By the way, this is one of the few art forms that has grown up with the express purpose of selling liquor. <laughs> and they're, they are, in a lot of ways, diametrically opposed. That's just our cross to bear. <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah, jazz musicians, of course, play to drunk audiences, too, and they don't like it much themselves. Well, the one thing I want to, I know we're getting close to the line here. There's so many things I'd love to ask you guys, but I don't want to leave out the patron saint of this book. Um, you guys have dedicated this book to George Carlin. He is also the last interview in the book, and it was his last interview. It was only a week before he died yeah, of heart failure about a week. in 2008. Obviously, you, you, well, dare I say, revere him. Yeah. Paul, and, yeah. and maybe you too, Dan. I, I, I'm not daring to say it. It's true. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. true. I mean, look, he was just one of the best there is. You know, I mean, the 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 ironically the holy trinity <laughs> of comedy really is Lenny, Pryor, and Carlin. You, you mean, know? Uh, you know, from the '60s on? Just in right. terms of the kind of comedy we're talking about, yeah. in terms Stand of up. substantive, uh, you know, transgressive, challenging, artful comedy. Uh, comedy with a point of view, something to say. Uh, risky comedy, people who are really putting themselves on the line, you know, taking a chance every time they go out and open their mouths in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, uh, they're just phenomenal. Carlin left behind such an ovra. I mean, 14 or 15 full-hour HBO specials, uh, I don't know how many albums, books, whatever. I mean, the most prolific, by far, comedian that we've ever experienced. Hmm. Um, an array of styles, movements within his own work. You can track the progress of him as an artist through his work. It's, it's stunning. It's stunning. Well, the word comedian, I mean, I almost think of him as a philosopher, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And this interview of yours exposes, I mean, I think a lot of people who, who really, really uh, think about the art of comedy think there's something very pure about Carlin. And that pure quality comes out in a very interesting and surprising way in some remarks he makes about sort of humanity. Uh-huh. This guy, he wasn't cold-hearted, but boy, he uh, he had a relationship to to humanity collectively that was pretty stern, let's say. Severe, austere, what's the right word for it? Uh, I don't know. So, so here's what he says that, that really raised my eyebrows. And I should have sort of known that he felt this way from his actual humor, but still it's striking. I will help a person, but I will not help a group of people 100 or 10,000 miles away. F*** them. I don't see them. I don't feel them. They're not part of me. And then he goes on to say, um, I root for big numbers, for nature against man. And he says, before 9-11, he'd planned to call his HBO special scheduled for October. Uh, after 9-11, he had to change the title later. I kind of like it when a lot of people die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a stone cold m- <laughs> yep. I, I did the photographs for that for the uh for the album cover of that and and uh all of a sudden they're like uh now it's called complaints and grievances <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> newsflash uh yeah and um you know what's interesting though is he does also say uh he's they say if you scratch a cynic you find a disillusioned idealist mm-hmm. and i have to cop to that mm. you know um uh but it's interesting because i've gotten very friendly with uh, his daughter kelly uh, a really fine essayist in her own right, uh, and uh, she says that she used to have these conversations with them all the time. That she would tell him, "You're not the kind of nihilist, uh, you know, um, what's the word? Not misanthrope. Uh, misanthropic. Thank yeah. you. Not the nihilist misanthrope you pretend to be. That you actually do really love human beings and mm-hmm. care about it." And, and he would say things like, "Well, don't tell anybody," you know. <laughs> but the bargain he made for the sake of his art is a kind of detachment, maybe. Or See, I don't consider it detachment. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's that it is that sort of, you know what it is. I, it's it's well, not it's being soft, unflinching. Yeah, it's not soft pedaling. Yeah. It's not like yeah. look, here's the story, here's how I see it. You know, it's just truth for him. It's just how he sees the world. He doesn't care if you agree or disagree. He's thought of a really funny really funny idea about it, and he has crafted it and honed it and worked on it. To express it to you you don't have to agree with it you know um he was unflinching and he was phenomenal and he was a beacon he was so far ahead the best way i can describe it is he raised the bar to beyond even uh, approachable mm. dan you said he really liked the photo you took of him he did i, I and, and what was it that he liked about it though and i mean unfortunately our our listeners can't see it but maybe you can describe it and tell us what what uh it's, it's simple really it's a it's a photograph of him sitting on sitting on a piano and what one of the things that he liked about it is he says that's in essence what we do i'm 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 in a concert meister's office but i'm sitting on his piano i'm sitting on his steinway and that is in a sense in a sense what we do and to have him say that it was the photo that he wanted to be remembered by just before he died to and then subsequently later to have his daughter kelly say it was the sweetest photo of him that she ever saw it was was truly amazing for for me, especially because he's the one who changed my life when I was eight, you know, and it's it was just the the most rewarding the most rewarding comment I've ever received from anyone compliment I've received from him. He did change my life too, you know. Carlin was for me as a, as a, as a comedy geek, Carlin was what it must have been like for you know some kid playing in a, in a band in his garage to have heard Hendrix for the first time uh, and uh, even more so the Sex Pistols I mean Carlin was for me the shot of punk you know all of a sudden I heard Carlin uh, and, and speaking my language the language of comedy the thing that I related to the most Carlin all of a sudden gave me license to to actually sit back and go you know what maybe I'm not crazy maybe everyone else is crazy just maybe I don't have to rule that possibility out, you know, and maybe I should say these things that I'm not supposed to say. And just he just freed me. He just showed me what was possible. And and, and he gave me that anti-authoritarian streak. He, he made it possible for me to embrace that. Hmm. Well, both you guys, I just want to thank you for for being crazy, because I'm going to say you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for uh... that's a great compliment as far as I'm concerned. How what a drag it would be to be normal. Boring. (laughs) Thank you so much. 
Paul Provenza and Dan Dion. You can learn more about their new book, Satiristas, at satiristas.com. And you can learn more about this program at 7thAvenueProject.com. For the 7th Avenue Project, I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. 